right. So uh, night one, we talked about the big questions of life, right? We, we said there's a white noise to our culture. As a junior higher in modern-day America, you are, you're steeped. You, you live in a world that's so ingrained. There's a, a fun story that it's kind of a little parable, if you will, where there's two fish swimming in the water, and one fish says to the other fish, man, the water's nice today. And the other fish says, what's water? Right? The point being, when you're a fish and you swim in water so often, you, don't, you no longer realize it's there. We are, we are least aware of what's most consistent in our life. Would you agree? We are least aware of what's most consistent. Like, how many of you guys have ever been trying to go to sleep and you think about your breathing, right? Have you ever taken your breathing off of autopilot and put it on manual mode? Isn't it the craziest thing? You're like, oh, man, my body just does this by itself, right? And none of you ever think to yourself, you don't ever tell your heart to beat. You take it for granted, right? But if, you're ever, if your heart ever stopped beating, you'd be in real big trouble, right? You don't think about it. You, you're not often grateful for it. Um, your posture, right? we got to be reminded to sit up straight. I love when I do that because everyone goes, oh, yeah. Because uh, we're least aware of what's most consistent to us. And, and we said the white noise of culture often, it just kind of rocks us to sleep. So we walk along and we don't ask the big questions of life. Uh, why am I here? What am I made for? What is my purpose? And I loved Hume SoCal's vision for this winter camp that says, let's look at everything through the lens of created purpose. Let's look at everything through the lens of a master maker who creates and constructs. And, 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 and if you make a vase, if you make, uh, if, if a blacksmith is making a piece of metallurgy, if, you're, if, you're ma- if, if you want to make uh, something out of pottery, a bowl out of pottery, you have an intended use for that bowl. You, you've created it on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. And yet we as the pottery, and yet we as the, 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 the thing that has been made have decided Instead of listening to the creator to dictate our purpose, and out of our purpose flows our meaning. It flows our value, right? If you don't know why you're here, you don't know if you're doing a good job. You don't know if you're doing a bad job. You don't know if you're succeeding. You don't know if you're failing. We talked about that so much this morning. But when we appeal to God, we get a very clear answer that is steeped in our key verse for this week. And I'm going to throw it up on the slide here. Uh, Tim, if we have that available. Therefore... 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, in that phrase, in that little parenthetical, in that little prepositional phrase, in Christ, we find the difference between all mankind. There are two types of people who have ever lived, those who are in Christ and those who are in the world, those who are children of God and those who are enemies of God. There is no in-between. There's no Switzerland. There's no spiritual Switzerland. There is only those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. Those who are in Christ will one day meet God face to face, and the vouch for their soul, the part of you that is eternal, the reason that you will spend eternity with Jesus is because he was your king. If the king of your life is this world, it's popularity, it's sex, it's money, it's power, it's anything else, when you meet the king, he will ask, what did you do with Jesus? And you're not going to be able to say, I worshiped him, I followed him, I surrendered to him. It was in Christ, you're going to say, the delicious promise, fake promise of the world got its claws on me, and I chased it, and I, and, and I might have succeeded, and you're going to find out, for a lot of us in here, a, a lot of us that are sitting here right now will finish their life apart from God, and when they meet God face to face, which you will, your divine appointment will go very poorly, and your main reason for that is because as you your life, 
sin and the temptation to follow this world instead of Jesus is extremely strong. If it was a, our natural way of being, this book would be one sentence long, right? Do what you do naturally, it would say, and we would all go, great. Why is it so long? Because it goes against every fiber of our fallen being to surrender our life to something bigger than ourselves. We hate it. We don't want to admit that we're broken. We don't want to admit that we've messed up. We don't want to admit that we're sinful. We don't want to admit that we need help. We don't want to admit any of these things. And the culture you live in has permitted the lie that you're going to be okay on your own. Because our culture is so afraid of offending people, as, a, as like a bunch of sheep walking off a cliff, Satan and culture wants you to go, you're going to be fine. I'm sure at the bottom of the cliff it's going to be nice and gentle. It's going to be awesome. Jesus comes in, and it, through his word and in his loving kindness, he screams, and he says, you're headed for death. Because if anyone is not in Christ, they are not a new creation. The old has not gone. What's the old? The old is sin. It's a stain. It's separation. And those, th this is the crazy thing about God. People often tell me, I'm, gonna, I'm, a, I'm what you call an apologist, which means I go to universities, I go to conferences. I, um, I, part of my job is to make a reasonable, intellectual, scientific defense for the existence of God. So I'm a professor of master's level theology, so I teach systematic theology and I teach apologetics to pastors, people who are Christian pastors. That's part of my job. So my job is I go to secular universities, and I go and I debate. And I argue in the affirmative, does God exist? I say yes. I give historical, um, psychological, um, bibliographical, biological, um, cosmological reasons to believe in God. I believe that there's evidence for God. He's, he's not just simply blind faith God. There's reason there. And if you want to take my 16-week course, just kidding, you're not able to. But for 16 weeks, I'll walk you through Here's all the evidence for God. Here's why even people like me, I'm not really a big feeler, right? Like when someone tells me something unbelievable, I start by not believing it, right? Some of us, we're built a little bit more trusting. When someone says something crazy, we're like, wow, that's phenomenal. People like me go, I don't think so, right? Like, I saw Bigfoot. My membrane, I go, no, you didn't. No, nope, you probably didn't. No, nope, that's not what happened. You probably ate some bad pizza. You smoking something weird, like you didn't see Bigfoot. It didn't happen, right? So there's reason to believe in God outside of some pastor telling you you should do it and you should have blind faith. There's, I mean, that's my job. I mean, I get, I get paid to do that. So we know, with that being said, that we're all going to have to meet him one day. And what are we going to do in that moment? The two separations are those who are in Christ and those who are in this world. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The sin, the separated, the chasm. The question that people ask me as, a, as an apologist is they say, if God is so loving, then why is there a hell? And, and here, this is a really crazy way of answering it, but I want you to hear me on this. What if hell was God giving everyone who's ever existed exactly what they asked for? Think about it. If hell is a place where God is not, we talked about this morning, every good and perfect gift is from God. Joy, laughter, consciousness, friends, family, fun, um, a contentment, uh, a satisfaction of hunger, a satisfaction of thirst. Everything you've experienced in your life that has been remotely positive is God extending an invitation for you to know him. Everything ever. 
So what if hell is a place where God is not? Well, if wherever God is, and we know that here on this earth, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere all at once, we get to bask in the riches of his glory in every moment. We laugh, we think, we are of sound mind for most of us a lot of the time, right? We get to eat good meals, we get to have fun, we get to have a box of glitz, we get to have healing of medicine, we get to have all these things. And if hell is a place where God is not, imagine an environment in which all the things we take for granted are removed. There is no joy, there is no laughter, there is no sound mind, there is no contentment, there is no satisfaction of basic needs, there is no satisfaction of hunger, there is no feeling of being poor, there is no feeling of being have your thirst quenched. It's all taken away. But in reality, you either sit in this room saying, I want God, I want Jesus, and I want him forever. Well, guess what? God will give you exactly what you want because God has made a place that all of us who are in Christ will enjoy community with him forever and ever and ever and ever. But those of us who say, God, with my heart, with my lifestyle, with my mind, I want nothing to do with you. God says, well, I've also built a place for you to get exactly what you want. That's all that hell is. Hell is God giving people who say, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus person exactly what they want, except they don't realize that everything that they enjoy is already a gift from God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Keep going. All this is from God who reconciled. The word reconciled is a Greek word which means um, uh, stop the beat, um, fix the fight, ended the war, made a peaceable treaty. God made a peaceable treaty with his enemies. And our, Satan and his demons are certainly God's enemies, but guess who else is his enemies? Anyone who follows them. Anyone who says, I want the glory, remember this morning, I want the glory to be on me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to be reconciled. We are by nature at war with the God who made us because we've rebelled against him. So there must become peace who reconciled us to himself through Christ. How did Christ reconcile? How did Jesus fix the war between God and mankind? Because God in his character is perfectly just. Here's what I want you to think about right now. The sin that you've committed, the rebellion of your, of your nature, being born human, caused a war between you and God. So here's what happens. We deserve hell. In order for that to be reconciled, someone has to come and experience hell in our place or else we still have to undergo it, right? So Jesus reconciles himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's why I'm here. I'm here because God saved me and then he put on my heart the ministry of reconciliation. I'm not talking to you tonight because I had nothing better to do on a Saturday night. I'm talking to you tonight because my life was radically changed. My eternity was perfectly shifted from hell to heaven because of what Christ did for me. And now that ministry has been laid on me and on Hume Songtao and on every believer ever. The reason that your counselors sleep in your stinky cabin and are around you and the reason that every youth pastor in this room can get paid more in the secular world but they are inside of your church. Every counselor who's given up their paid vacation to come and be here with you is not because they had anything, they had nothing better to do. I hope they do like you. I hope they do love you. But none of that means beans if there is not a gospel presentation that your life could be changed forever. No one would do it. 
if this was just a YMCA camp where you came and had fun, I promise you, finding counselors would be extremely difficult. The reason the people around you who lead your small group to have brought you here are here is for one reason, that you might know peace. Because you are at war with the king, and they don't like that. I'm teaching to you because I'm telling you, you have a bad case. You are at war with God. Without Jesus, you are at war with him. And you're not going to win, right? <laughs> Does anyone like their odds in that fight? No. He makes the whole universe spin and float with a word, with a thought of his mind, like dream night. <laughs> you're not going to win, okay? So when you come up in a fight that you're not going to win, and God is always consistent in his character, He's not going to look at the sin on our record and go, not a big deal. I'm going to let this one go. He always must bring his wrath on sin. So what is the call? What is my call? What's your counselor's call? What's your youth pastor's call? Get out of the way of his wrath. And you can only do that if someone stands in your place. He has given us, this is our burden as Christians. We now have the ministry of preaching reconciliation to you. Billions of Christians who have gone before you, the saints who have gone ahead of us for thousands of years have all touted one story, and it's the one I'm going to tell you tonight. One call, one faith, one baptism for the remission, the redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. I am not preaching anything new tonight. The message that I teach is an ancient, as long as the universe is old. We found it back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, there would be a crushing of the son of Mary in order to crush the head of the serpent. An exchange made perfectly. The sinner becomes a son. Ministry of reconciliation. Next one. That God was reconciling. He was, this was his plan from the beginning. It was to fix it. It was to end the war. Reconcile the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. Not saying that people didn't sin, but not counting their sin against them. I am a follower of God. I sin every day. What makes me different than the enemy of God? Because now as a child of God, my sin isn't counted against me. I still mess up every day. I still lose my temper. I still have bad thoughts. I still say things that I shouldn't say every single day. What's the difference? My sin is no longer counted against me. And because of what Christ has done for me, I want to live for him, even though I know I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's my message I'm giving you tonight. Next one. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We, who's we? Christians, saints, those who are children of God. This is our primary responsibility. We ambassad the gospel. It means we teach what has been done to us. Every Christian story should start with, here's who I was before Christ, here is when I met Christ, and here's who I am now. We as Christians, if you're in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador of Christ. And your ministry is to those around you who don't know Jesus, that they might know him. It should be the highest burden of your life. Nothing's, what's more important than changing someone's eternal destination? Nothing else could possibly be more important because nothing else lasts as long. Be, we implore you, I love that word, we implore you, we make a pleading beg to you, be reconciled with God. Respond to the gospel that the war might be over. 
between you and the king. Go ahead. And this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. This wasn't even part of the theme, but I snuck it in there. Because once I get up here, they can't stop me. I, Corey could. He's big, right? He could take me out. But here we go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hold that one on, um, on the back burner, Tim. I'm going to be calling that one in the end. But I'm going to finish with this. If you guys have your Bibles, I'd love you to get those out. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give one to you. But I want you to see this with your own eyes. I don't want you to walk away from this weekend and go, oh, that was Chris's opinion on something. I want you to see the Bible for what it says. So far, we have said, night one, there is a God. This morning, we talked about that you have sinned and fallen short and have become an enemy of God by nature and through action. In action, attitude, deed, thought, and every part of your life. But... You can still be saved. There is still hope for you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see it with your own eyes, not through my opinion. Because I want you to be able to go back to this for the rest of your life. The cool thing about the Bible is it's ne there's no revisions to it. You're never going to get a Bible next year and it's like Bible 2.0. <laughs> All the things that we sh should have put in the first time. It doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? The Bible that you're holding in your hands is 99.5% perfectly translated over the centuries, passed down through the generations, and the 0.5% is exclusively slips of the pen and spelling errors that an, illiter an, an illiterate group of people who are originally copying this would have made mistakes. But the words that you're holding are the same words that were there. To 99.5%, the Bible you're holding can be trusted. Okay? And if you want to learn more about that, I have a 16-week course called The Validity of the Bible. But you're too young to take it. But someday we can hang out. And I will give you good grades because I am not a teacher that's above bribes. Why? Because I'm still a fallen, sinful person. Okay? Literally 20 bucks and I'll give you an A. I don't care that much. Okay? Anyways, I want you to see it for yourself. Okay? If you have your Bibles, we're going to open to the book of Romans. If you don't know what Romans is, you can flip to your Bible, you might find four guys' names towards the back of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After John, you're going to get a book called Acts, short for the Acts of the Apostles, and then Romans. At the beginning of your Bible, God wrote a table of contents to tell you what page Romans starts on. You can do that. If you've got a Bible nerd next to you and he finds it really quickly, take his Bible, give him yours, and say, find it again, nerd, and he will. Because he's a Christian, and he has to. That is our burden. book of Romans, I want you to see this for yourself, I want you to read it for yourself, and then I want you to make a decision for yourself. Hey, listen, I don't want to manipulate you, I didn't tell the story of my wife tonight, I don't want to get you on some emotional high, I don't want to tell you some really convincing story, I don't want you getting all weepy by talking about some intense Campbell's Soup for the Soul story, any of that stuff. I'm, I'm not, I don't want you to have any kind of manipulation. I don't want to, to get you all worked up in something. I don't want to get you angry. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to do anything. I want you to be of sober mind. Okay? You're too mature to be treated and to be manipulated. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to talk to you. Okay? And I'm going to ask you all weekend, I've, I've given you hard truth, and you've been so respectful in returning that respect to me in kind. 
And tonight I'm going to capitalize on the end of it because I'm going to ask you to make a, a decision and to respond to what we're talking about. But some of you who all weekend have been tracking and going, okay, there is a God. Yes, I've fallen short. I've got a bad case. I'm an enemy of God, but I want to be a son. I want to be a daughter. I want to be with him forever. I just don't know how. That's what I'm going to tell you. All I'm going to do for the rest of this time is to tell you that if you walked into this weekend apart from God, an enemy of God, you listen to the words that I'm going to say straight from Scripture, and you can make a decision. You can surrender your life tonight and say, from here on out, I follow Jesus. From here on out, I am a son or child of the Most High God. But I don't want to manipulate you. I just want you to read it for yourself. This is what the Bible, this is what the Bible says. Here is what it means to be saved. Okay? Romans chapter 1. I'm going to put it up on the screen, but I would really prefer that you read it in your own Bibles, for those of you who have them. Here's what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, like his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Here's what this is saying. You might have been confused because Paul is a really smart guy. Paul writes the book of Romans. The uh, Time magazine a few years back called him the second most influential man who's ever lived, Paul of Tarsus. He's the one who wrote this. He's a historical figure. Okay, some like happy group of people didn't get together and write the book of Romans. An historical figure who Time Magazine, the secular magazine, said is the second most influential man who's ever lived just wrote these words. And he said this. If you ask God why is he hiding himself, he would respond with this. He would say, I'm not. He would say, all over creation are the fingerprints of God. Everything. Okay, and let me, let me walk you through a really simple way of understanding how darkened our hearts and how darkened our minds are as culture, and how, how uh, fallacious, that's a big word, how, um, how many logical mistakes we make as people, okay? Um, I'm walking in the woods with my son, Brady, up at, up at Hume Lake, and we come across this tree, and on the tree, it says C plus R, and it has a heart around it, right? And so my son, Brady, says, Dad, who wrote that, okay? Why is that important? It's important because my son who is five years old, he's got the color-changing lenses on his glasses, right? You've just seen him walking around. He's like, he's very friendly, uh, he's a goober, but he's, you know, he like, he's not writing any books, you know, like he's, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, he's a great kid, he's so loving, but like I'm not banking on him getting some kind of academic scholarship, at least at this point. And partly it's because he's a, he's a really bad teacher um, at his school, he's homeschooled, and um, Anyway, his teacher's a moron, um, but that's neither here nor there. I try hard, but it turns out I'm not a very good teacher. Uh, so Brady, uh, he goes, Dad, who wrote that? What did, what did Brady assume? What was his question? Did he say, Dad, what made that? Why? Why would a five-year-old with such limited life experience see something like that and automatically assume that the, the question word at the beginning of the sentence should be who and not what? What did he see that taught him that he needs to use a who made it, not a what made it? What did he see? What did he see? He saw letters. What do letters denote? Letters are information giving. Letters are designed. Letters are intentional. Letters are complex, right? If you and I were walking in the woods and we stumbled upon a stone and in it, it, had sa it says 
Here lies the bones of Billy Bagwell. May he rest in peace, Yark. I don't know why he's a pirate, but somebody, I don't know, right? And we stumbled upon that tombstone, and you were like, man, what do you think made that? Or what if I asked you, I was like, what do you think made that? I'm going to guess woodpecker, right? Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like some beaver walked along, and it was like, it like probably kicked up this tombstone and pushed this rock into place. There's a bear, and the, the, the bear and the beaver like worked in tandem, and the bear probably rolled the stone. The beaver like patted it down with his tail, and then they got their friend who was a woodpecker, and then they probably, I, I'm, here's my guess. My guess is that the owl, the owl has seen some stuff, right? So the owl dictates, whoo, whoo, uses Morse code to tell him what letters to write. How the woodpecker knows what letters to write, I don't know, but there's a lot, right? When would you stop me and go, Will, are you high? Right, like, probably when I went, I think a bear, you'd go like, I think you need to stop. I think you need to see someone. I'm really concerned about what you're talking about, right? I hope we can all laugh because of how incredibly foolish it would be to see something as simple as a tombstone with 16 letters on it. We would all go, who was here? Now listen to me. Track with me. Never forget what I'm about to tell you. If you look at 16 letters on a tombstone and you automatically insinuate design and you look at your own self and the way that you were created and molded and formed, the information in your DNA is a code. It is literally an information packet a la Ikea furniture that tells your cells how to make more versions of you. A man named Francis Collins won the Nobel Prize in Science because he decoded the human genome. And he said, it is the language of God. It is A's, T's, G's, and C's. It is a language written in and of itself that is explanatory for making more of your own cells. He finishes his experiment. He maps out the human genome. He writes a book called The Language of God. He surrenders his life to faith in Jesus Christ. And he wins the Nobel Prize in science. And he says, anyone who looks at the information in DNA and doesn't see design has created an incredible leap in logic. For if you can look at a tombstone and say, who wrote this, and you can't look at your own system right now for you to see me, the rods and cones, your pupils, your iris, your flipping upside down of the image in your brain, to see me, to interpret language. You guys realize I'm not saying words. I'm making noises. That's all words are. When you say, what's your name? What you mean is, what noise do I make to get your attention? Because your name did not predate mankind. At one day, someone was like, mm, Sarah. What's Sarah? I don't know. Sarah means, uh, I don't know, that's going to be your name, right? So you don't have a name. You have a noise that people make when they get your attention. And all I'm doing right now is making different noises. My mouth is moving like this, and you are interpreting it as meaning. You're going, those noises make words, those words make sentences, and those sentences have meaning. You're doing all this without thinking. Some of you are sleeping like him, right? One day I hope to be captivating enough. To keep the front row awake. But it's not going to be today. Anyway, do you understand that failure of logic? You will, listen to me, you will spend the rest of your school, if you're in public school, you will spend the rest of your school career being told you're a mistake. If I had a crystal ball, I don't even need one. The rest of your high school and college career, you will be being told that you are an accident. You are an accident on a cosmic scale, and you have no purpose, you have no real morality, and therefore you should give your money to poor people. And it's going to make no sense. 
You're a piece of space dust that evolved. It's goo to you via the zoo. Therefore, we should all be kind to each other. What the heck are you talking about? Everything's meaningless if there is no creator. If you're a speck of space dust, why are we talking about fair and unfair and right and wrong and morality? It's all garbage. It's all an illusion. But you know what I know. Murder's wrong. Rape is wrong. Bigotry is wrong. Racism is wrong. Looking down on people who are less than us is wrong. And I don't know that because my monkey relatives somehow adapted that. I know that because God has written the law on the conscience of my soul. Friend, you are not a mistake. And you ought to fight because that's all you're going to be told for the rest of your, of your schooling career. But for you to look at that and say, this denotes intelligence, and to look at yourself and say, I must have been a mistake, is the dumbest leap in logic anyone could possibly make. You were made on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. This is what Romans 1 says. Romans 1, the gospel message, what do I do to respond to the gospel starts with trusting there is a God. Secondly, <coughs> I would have you turn here. Romans chapter 3 says this. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. So if you're in chapter 1, you turn one or two pages to the right, and you'll end up in chapter 3. There's a big word here that we don't tend to use in modern culture. The word is righteous. That means right with God. That means there is no one in their nature that is not at war with God. Everyone's rebelled against God. Everyone has rebelled against God. And the, the punishment for that rebellion, for a fair and honest judge, it's, it, the, the sin is treason. Okay, What is the punishment for treason? From medieval time to today, what's the punishment for treason? Death. So when we sin, we rebel against God. God gives his perfect law, and we say, I'm doing things my way. We say, you think you're king, but in my life, I'm king. That's called treason. And the punishment for treason is death. And the punishment for treason against the God of the universe is not just temporary physical bodily death. It is eternal separation in a place the Bible calls hell, where God is not. So make no mistake, that there is a God sounds like good news, but then the next step is bad news. None of us are right with him. That God that made you, who designed you, who made the human genome, we are not right with him. Next one. <coughs> You might think to yourself, okay, that's a neat trivia fact. I'm not right with God. Who cares? Well, the problem is, <coughs> oh, keep going. Next one, sorry. Um, uh, go to Romans 6.23. There it is. Here's a problem with that. So turn a couple pages to the right, Romans chapter 6, so big number 6 and small number 23. Here's what it says. The rebellion and the treason, just what we talked about a second ago, has earned us something. That's what the word wage means, okay? If you work it in and out, you might make a wage of, you know, 15 bucks an hour. So if you work for two hours on a Saturday, you're going to, the wage you've earned is $30. And the, the owner is now responsible for paying you your wage because that's what you've earned. That's what's fair. The Bible uses this, and it says, you've earned something from your rebellion. Your treason, sin, the wages of rebellion, the wages of your treason, here's what you've earned. The wages of your rebellion is, help me out, death. When the Bible talks about death, it doesn't just mean your body stops breathing, your heart stops beating. It means eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is hell. The wages of our treason is hell. 
We're all guilty of it. None of us have outdone it. Why? Because Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. But, this is an important word. This conjunction is crucial. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's why this, here's why this is important. When, you, when we strive, when we try to please God in what we're doing, when we try to look good on our own, when we try to be a good person, that, that, the, what we've actually earned in that is death. Because you can't do it on your own. You can't earn God's favor. You can't earn God's salvation. You can't earn heaven. You can't earn goodness. You can't earn righteousness. You can't earn it. So in order for us to obtain it, it's got to be a free gift. So this is what this verse says. We've earned death, but we've been given freely life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How? Flip back to Romans 5, verse 8. Romans, big number 5, small number 8. This is what the Bible says. If the wages of sin is death, and we're all responsible for it, that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, how could we possibly, right? We got we to ask the question, well, if God is perfectly just, and we've committed treason against him, and treason is punishable by death, can God look at treasonous people and go, you know what, I'm going to let this one slide. Can God let treason slide? No! It's impossible. And it, he's, he, it's not that God can't let treason slide because he's really angry. It's not that God can't let treason slide because he's having a bad day. God can't let treason slide because it's against his character, and God never goes against his character. So think about this, okay? I'm asking you to, 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 to track with me on this. If I'm a judge, and you get caught murder with uh, uh, charges of murder, theft, and all these things, and I say the only substitute, the only way that you can be forgiven for this is you will have to die. But you're not just going to die a temporary death. You deserve to die an eternal death. As a judge, I can't possibly pardon what you've done or forgive what you've done until the price of murder, adultery, cheating, stealing, lying, fornication, all that is paid. So what does Jesus do? Jesus, who's in the courtroom during your trial, stands up. He walks across the courtroom. And where God is pronouncing his sentence, Jesus stands. And as God's wrath and his anger is poured out wrathfully, hell, death, pain, punishment is poured out where you're supposed to be, Jesus steps in place. He pushed you out of the way, and he absorbed all of the punishment and all of the wrath of God that you and I deserve. What did that do? What it did is it allowed God to be consistent with his character. The fair judge pronounced the sentence. The fair judge carried out the sentence. The fair judge executed the treasonous slave. But for some ridiculously loving reason, when he went to pour out his wrath, for those of us who trust in God, we simply say, Jesus, will you take this for me? And Jesus says, you have no clue how long I've wanted to hear you say that. How does God's perfect justice and perfect love meet? 
It meets on the cross of Christ where Jesus said, I am going to stand in the place where you deserve to be punished. You should be crucified. You should be mocked. You should be tortured. You deserve hell. And Jesus said, but if I take all that in your place, the justice of God can be upheld, that the price of your sin can be paid, and you can experience righteousness, reconciliation with God. Why? Because when Jesus underwent the wrath and the the death that we deserve, our price has been paid. Now God the Father can look at us, not as sinners, treasonous, murderous, fornicating, adulterous people. He looks at us like the same way he would look at his son. Pure, clean, perfect. Your debt has been paid. Therefore, God in his justice and his love can adopt us as his children. There is no more war. The war is over because Jesus undertook it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, remember what it said? Jesus became sin, though he knew no sin, he was perfect, so that we, the sin, could become perfect. It's a trade. That's what salvation is. It's a cosmic trade. Jesus takes the penalty for my sin, and I reap the benefits of his perfection. And your question should be, why the heck would he do that? If the Holy Spirit's in your heart in this very moment, your question you should be asking that should be bringing you to brokenness inside of your heart is, why would anyone do that for you? And the answer is this, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love motivated, it's a father motivated to rescue his children. And if my son ever came up to me and asked me, Dad, why do you love me? I would look at him cross-eyed and go, what do you mean, why do I love you? And if he said, well, is it because I'm smart? Is it because I'm financially savvy? Is it because I help a lot around the house? I would go, Peyton, 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 Harper, Brady, Leo, Finley. doesn't matter which one of the kids asked the question. I would go, you think I love you because something you did? I love you because you're mine. Which is why people who are not my kids can do anything they want. They can give me money. They can say nice things. But the love I have for them will never be the same because they are not mine. And the moment that we surrender and we say, God, take my sin, take my brokenness. Jesus, bear the penalty for my sin on the cross. I trust that you did that for me. Jesus, God the Father, looks at us and he says, you are mine. And we go, well... Well, but what if I mess up tomorrow, and what, what, if, what if I say the wrong thing, and, 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 and what, what can I do to unearn the love that I've earned? God's going to go, oh, you think you earned this? The wages of sin is death. That's what you earned. It's a free gift. When do we get presents, typically speaking? Christmas and birthdays. Y'all didn't do anything on either of those days. That's why they're called gifts. On payday... When you work 40 hours a week and someone hands you a check, you don't go, thank you. Thank you so much. I couldn't possibly accept this. No, you go, and there we go, and I'll be depositing it in the bank, and I don't feel any certain way about it because I've earned this. But on our birthday, bro, you don't remember your own birthday. You weren't conscious for it. You were all covered in slime, and it was, it was like, Bleh. your mom was a present on your birthday, not you, right? Why do you, right? It's like, well, you survived another year. For most of you, that wasn't your own doing anyway, right? 
Yeah, well, I've been working hard lately, my 11-year-old self making, bro, it's all a gift. Here's what God's saying. If there's nothing you did to earn my love, then what could you do to unearn my love? Romans 8, 38, and 39. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because God's love for you isn't dependent on you earning it. It's dependent on his unyielding, undying, unending, perfect, substitutionary love for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's motivated by God's love for you. You might be going, oh, so it's like a trade. I get his perfection. He takes my punishment. I don't get why he would do that. But then your question should be, well, then how do I receive this? How do I become a Christian? How do I actually make the trade? How do I, how do, how do I receive what he's done for me? This is the last verse for the night. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10 says this. This is your response. If you're sitting here and you're in, in here and you're going, I get it. I want to make the trade. What, what must I do to be saved? What, what, what do I do to respond to what he's done? Here's what Romans 10 says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, it's two parts. You understand this? The first one, the second part of it, but I think the first understanding is to say, in your heart, you say, Jesus, I believe that when you died on that cross, you took away the penalty of my sin. When you came back to life, you proved you have the power to make dead things live again. And I trust that your death and resurrection paid the price for my sin. And accordingly, and in response to that, from here on out, my life is yours. You are Lord. That word for Lord in the Greek is kurios, meaning king. When I gave my life to Christ at Hume Lake, when I was 11 years old, I declared, Jesus, I don't get why you did it. I don't, I don't know how you could love me so much, but I believe that your death paid the price for my sins and your resurrection showed that you have that power and I trust in you for, from this day on forward. And because of that beautiful, loving gift of grace you gave me, you're the king of my life. And what you says go. Now, I'm still going to make mistakes, but my sins are no longer counted against me. And I will be with you in your kingdom forever. I tried to show you it directly from Scripture, and here's what we're going to do at this time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring Kenny Topi back up, and he's going to end with a song for us. But before he does, um, we're going to pray. And, and you don't need to bow your heads yet. Look at me, because I want you to, this is the last part of the thing. With sober minds and sober judgment, I'm going to ask you. Some of you in here are going to listen to what I said tonight, and you're going to say, I don't care. And you know what? That's also an adult response. But at least now you're not uninformed. At least you have an informed reason to reject Jesus. And that's still better than if you walked in this camp going, who the heck's Jesus? At least you now know. You might go, I'm not surrendering. I'm the king of my life. I think I can make it on my own. Or I'm not, I'm not surrendering my will. I want to do what I want to do all the time. I'm not ready to have someone else be my king. That's an informed decision you're making. I think it's the wrong one, but it's still an informed one. Some of us walked into this weekend not knowing Jesus or just sitting in the periphery of Jesus or just coming to church. We didn't get it. And through these conversations and your talks with your pastors and your youth pastors, and they've been trying to tell you this story for years, and your small group leaders, it, something clicked for you. And you said, I'm not going to make it on my own. I need help. And tonight, I'm surrendering my life over to Jesus. I'm going to give him my sin, and I'm going to receive his perfection. From this day on, God is the king of my life. 
And when he died on that cross tonight, I'm pinning my sin to that tree he died on. And I believe he paid that. He paid my debt when he did it. It says in that moment, when enemies of God pray a prayer of repentance, that means turning away from their old way and surrendering to Jesus. In that moment, they move from objects of God's wrath, from enemies of the God of, God of the universe, to adopted children, to loved, saved, forgiven, adopted children. The power of the gospel is it moves dead things to life, enemies to children, the far to the near, and the destination from hell to heaven. And what must you do to be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And if, you, if for the first time tonight you think to yourself, I've never given my life to Jesus. I get it. And I want, I want to pray that prayer. I, I want to give him my sin. I want to declare that he is Lord. I want to be a child of God. I want more of him in my life. I want to follow him. I want, I want him to be king. I want him to sit on the throne of my life. At the end of this prayer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer in which you can pray along with me in your heart, not even out loud. You can pray along with me to give your life to Jesus. At the end of that prayer, I'm going to ask any of you who prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand up and make a public declaration of faith just by standing to your feet. And in doing so, you show the people around you from here on out, I follow Jesus. Because while your life with Jesus, while your relationship with God is a personal one, it's not a private one. Your walk with Jesus is not meant to be done in isolation or in a silo. And if that's your plan, don't even worry about standing up. It won't work. Your relationship with God is personal. It's between you and him, but it's not private. We all share in it. We are a church. We are a family. We are a community. And so we will declare at the end of this, if you've given your life to Christ, you're going to stand up amongst your new brothers and sisters because you have the same father now that from here on out, my life is going to be lived for Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, for many of us in this room, this might be the first time we've ever prayed to you at all. God, for those of us who want to give our life over to you tonight to receive what you've done on the cross and to make you the king of our life. God, right now, those people are going to pray this prayer along with me in their hearts. Pray along with me in your hearts if this is your, want to do this for the first time. Jesus, I sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. It's been cosmic treason in thought, word, action, deed, attitude. God, not just in the things that I've done, but in the things I've left undone. In the moments where you've called me to be loving, to be generous, to be faithful, and I have rebelled against you. God, my life's a dumpster fire. I am nothing without you. I have, I have sinned against you. I have spit on your cross. I have re- I have, I, I've, I've done everything wrong. You've made me the perfect craftsman. You've made me as the perfect potter to look like you. And I've made my whole life about me. And in doing so, God, I've sinned against you. And I, I, I want to apologize. And God, I get that you don't, th- there's nothing I've done that deserves your forgiveness. But God, when I read the text, when I read your word, when I read your scriptures, you've given me a promise that if I repent and turn to you, you're going to wipe away my sin, God. And that's what I'm doing right now. So God, would you take it? Because I believe when you died on that cross 2,000 years ago, you took my sin away with it. 
I believe that when you came back from the dead, you demonstrated your power to make dead things live again. And God, so I am confident that on the day that I close my eyes in temporary death, that my soul will live on forever in this kingdom with you. Because you've given me that promise. And God, from here on out for all the days of my life, I surrender my life to you. What you say goes. And I'm still going to mess up, but I know that you've forgiven me like a father forgives his son, like a father forgives his daughter. And I am holy and utterly yours. You are the Lord of my life. You sit on the throne and you make the calls. Thank you for loving me enough to bear the wrath that I deserve, to take on hell that I have earned, that I could be reconciled to you. I will spend the rest of my life trying to say thank you for that. It's your name we pray. Amen. If tonight for the first time you said that prayer and surrendered